Welcome to the sixth episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Reed Draper. Reed, would you mind telling a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Reed Draper. I'm a software engineer at Basho. We're a software company that make two open source databases, React and ReactCS. One of them is a distributed key value store, and the other one is a database that presents the S3 API behind your firewall. So I uh, primarily write Erlang in my day job, but also play around quite a bit with Clojure and Haskell. Kind of found my, my sweet spot playing with those three languages after doing quite a bit of imperative programming before that. Yeah, I think that's about it. I was listening to you on the Cognicast a couple episodes back, and you were talking about how you actually cut in through Haskell, correct? Yeah, that's correct. In my last job, I sort of just started playing with Haskell. I have a, a friend who's getting his PhD, and he kind of had been playing with Haskell and you know, was trying to get me to learn it. And at the time, I had absolutely no functional programming experience. I, I don't think I'd even heard the word functional programming in college at all. And would read the Wikipedia page for functional programming and stuff, and it, it just didn't really click to me how you could program without mutable state. So I sort of forced myself to keep learning more and more about it until that made sense. It was sort of a mysterious thing, and I, I wanted to figure out what it was all about. I got started learning Haskell, but never really learned it particularly quickly. Kind of went through things, and once I kind of grokked the fundamentals, started playing with Erlang and Clojure as well, and have kind of continued to slowly learn more Haskell, I guess, over the past four years or so. What were you doing before? You mentioned you were in the imperative world, but what languages yeah. were you working in? So I was working at a company called the Echo Nest, working mostly in Python, writing programs to process, clean up, munge, and do some machine learning on music data. The company has a, a free API for music recommendations and stuff like that. And then they also sell data to radio stations and streaming music services and stuff that need to know about artists and bands and stuff. Okay, yeah, because I was wondering, because you actually made the transition in through Haskell. The lore that I hear, Haskell's my next on the list of languages. Right now, I've been playing with Clojure and some Erlang, and Haskell's the next, but I've heard Haskell may be the weirdest one to ramp up on because of its strict purity. What did you find about diving in and learning functional programming from Haskell? Yeah, I I had a great experience with it. It was, you know, I think a lot of it kind of depends on what your mindset going into a new language is. I've, I've sort of seen, this is probably a, uh, an overstatement, but I tend to see people kind of come in in two camps when they're learning a language. There are some people who, you know, at a particular point in time, feel like in order to really grasp something, they need a project that they're going to work on in that language. And other people who are kind of okay, slowly learning the fundamentals and learning the language for the language's sake. And I don't think one of those ways is better than the other or anything like that. For me, learning Python was very much project-oriented. I was a, a computer science major in college, but didn't really have a passion for it until I kind of found that I could apply it to my passion for music. But learning Haskell, I sort of tried to do things differently. I was okay just writing some pure functions, and I went through learn you some Haskell for great good. And, you know, it doesn't have you do any IO for quite a bit of the book. And for whatever reason, I was kind of just okay with that and kind of followed the guidance. And I think that really helped to get a really solid discipline for thinking about basic things from a, a functional way, which was, you know, coming from Python. And that was just a totally different way to see things, but I kind of did it all at once. So it, I don't know, in some ways it was, it was maybe easier that way. It sounds like it wasn't terribly tricky making that transition. It was just essentially buckling down and trying to learn it. huh? Yeah. You know, and there's, there's a ton of great resources for learning functional programming stuff. I mean, especially in probably the past two to five years or so, there's been a big resurgence of interest in functional programming. So there's a ton of resources for people to get started and stuff. And then a ton of material from back in the eighties, even that's some really cool stuff. And actually one of the cool things about reading some of those old papers is that 
sometimes I can actually understand those, you know, whereas if I read some type systems paper now, they're all assuming that you have the past 30 years or the past 50 years of experience. So it's actually kind of cool to go back and read some of those older papers when some fundamental concepts of functional programming were just being introduced and stuff. So I found that to be a good resource as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I've read some of the older papers and have tried to go with some of the newer papers. And I don't know if this is your experience, and you can tell me what you think, but it seems like some of the older papers were written for people who weren't necessarily in academia, whereas some of these newer papers expect a lot of knowledge about how papers are set up and written and not necessarily accessible to just anyone. Is that what, kind of what you found on some of this stuff? Yeah, no, I'd say that's that that's a fair assessment. I mean, to be honest, I, I can't really claim to know why that is, perhaps just because as computer science becomes more popular and more important, there becomes more people working on it in academia. So it's easier to write just for an academic audience. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've found a ton of really great papers sort of out of the Haskell and ML land that have helped me a lot with things that, you know, you'll just hear people talking in conversations and it sort of just feels like you're missing some fundamental things that they just keep saying. And a lot of those fundamental things are in papers from the 80s and early 90s, at least I found. Yeah, I was wondering, because I know you've done a lot of stuff with certain technical papers as well. Specifically, I guess, working with React, like the Paxos and Raft-style stuff. And going and approaching some of those papers sound a lot more in-depth than going with some of the other papers. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a pretty wide range of of papers and in pretty much every discipline of computer science. It's not hard to go find some dependent typing paper that was published in the past few years and look at it. And at least to me, most of that stuff uh, is over my head now. And with distributed systems, a lot of that can be the same way as well. Consensus in particular is a really tough, complex and subtle problem. So the good news at least is that once you're kind of able to be somewhat comfortable with those papers, I'm not sure that anyone is ever really comfortable with them. You know it doesn't get too much worse than that. A lot of the the old Lamport papers are a really great start. So there's definitely some not quite as intimidating stuff out there in distributed systems. The Amazon Dynamo paper actually, on which React and a bunch of other NoSQL databases were either based or inspired, is actually a really readable paper. And you'll learn a ton from that, even if you don't have any intention of writing your own database. It's just there's a bunch of really cool fundamental things that kind of had been talked about in academia for a long time, but were brought together in a really cool way in that paper. Okay. On that topic of DynamoDB and the papers and distributed systems and React, how have you found using Erlang helps with dealing with that? I know the Erlang with the fault tolerance and manageability of the supervisors, Mm -hmm. but how have you kind of found working with distributed systems and what, if anything, specific about Erlang other than those general concepts have really helped with that concept. Yeah, so I think Erlang is a really great language for writing distributed systems. I mean, given the chance, I wouldn't rewrite React or React CS in any other language. It's been it's been really nice for us. Let's see, there's a bunch of things we can kind of talk about with relation to that. One of the really nice things is that messaging between nodes is really really simple. If you want to, you can be oblivious as to whether you're sending a message from a process on one machine to a process on another or to a local process. So that's nice. It makes it really easy to test things locally and then deploy them distributed. The programming model fits really well for distributed systems. It doesn't try to pretend to be a function call. RPC is a really popular and really terrible idea that has just not died over the past, let's see, I guess, close to 30 years, and Erlang decidedly takes a different approach. It's based on message passing, which I think works really well in distributed systems. So a lot of the kind of the easy foundational things to do in Erlang are solid patterns to build on for writing distributed systems. So it gives you a good head start if you kind of follow the accepted best practices for 
writing Erlang programs, oftentimes that is low friction for writing programs that end up working well long-term as a distributed system. Erlang has got a bunch of other cool things that you don't even really learn about until you've kind of used a system that's written in Erlang or done it for a while. There's really powerful tools for debugging live systems that are written in Erlang. So a lot of times when we'll have problems with our customers, we won't have to take their node down at all to diagnose the problem and even load new code to fix the issue, which is really cool because the whole point of using distributed fault-tolerant database like React is that availability is really important to you. You've placed that as something more important than, let's say, transactions. So if we can actually debug your system and solve some problems without having to take the whole database down, that really helps our availability story. And there's a bunch of cool tracing tools and hot code loading in Erlang that really make it amenable for that. Yeah, I mentioned on a previous episode, I don't think it's gone out yet, if it's the one I'm thinking of, about how I, we've had to attach a couple times and do some do some debugging on that live system yeah. by adding in some certain function calls that say, okay, well, what are our counters looking like? Are we incrementing events? Are we event-ish stuff? But are we processing messages? Are we backlogged? What's going on here? And being able to essentially, again... With great power comes great responsibility, but yeah, for sure. attached to a live session and say, what are we actually seeing? Right. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, you've Erlang gives you the power of the full programming language through a REPL on a live running box. Normally, what you have to do is if you want some backdoor into your system to kind of poke around, you have to explicitly build all of those tools, whereas Erlang gives you a really nice base to start from, which is just the same REPL you'd have as you're developing your system, you can get that REPL on the system while it's running. That's actually changed a lot of the way I debug as well. I don't use a traditional step-by-step debugger at all in Erlang. I just set traces on a live running system. Granted, the live running system is just on my laptop, but I'll just set traces for certain function calls. I can say, only run this trace if the value is above five, and kind of have the whole system running while I'm gathering these metrics to get a better idea of what's going on. And I really don't miss having a traditional debugger at all. Okay. So React is distributed. And I've heard that as the cornerstone of using React, especially with Erlang and communicating with or communicating to React with other Erlang processes that you've written, where if a connection to one of the nodes fails, you retry another node in the list of your essentially React host. Mm-hmm. How would you go about recommending for those who are kind of just getting into distributed systems, dealing with distributed systems that aren't essentially replicated? So I think one of the most interesting and actually the easiest ways to get in is to look at the fallacies of distributed computing. I don't remember if it's eight or 10 fallacies, but if you just Google for fallacies of distributed computing, there's a list of things that are sort of assumptions that a lot of people implicitly make when they're writing a distributed system. And they're all things that end up biting you if you don't think about them from the beginning. And the reality is writing distributed systems is significantly more complex than writing the same system on a single node. You never have any idea when a machine is going to fail or whether it even failed or it's just taking a long time to respond. So even the simplest things, like in a regular program, it's not too difficult to get a bunch of threads to agree on a value. Sure, it's not completely trivial, but that's basic concurrent programming. Getting a bunch of distributed processes to all agree on a value, well, that's still an area of ongoing research in distributed systems. So even some of the most fundamental things become really difficult. But I think that's kind of what makes it fun. So just having a really solid understanding of why distributed systems are tough, I think actually gives you a big leg up over a lot of people who kind of don't think about those things and they try to pretend as much as they can that writing a distributed system is just like writing the same program, but it runs on a bunch of computers. And I think that ends up being a uh, a naive way of, of writing things. Yeah, I remember I just re-reviewed your episode and preps for this podcast with Craig Andera on, on the mm-hmm. uh, Cognicast. And you said something that was subtle, but very deep if 
if it was actually caught was that if you're doing any web-based programming, you're now working in a distributed system. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, I firmly believe that. I mean, even having just a static website with one browser connected is a distributed system. As soon as you're doing any sort of socket programming, you're writing a distributed system. And for better or for worse, you get all of the fun and the pain that comes with that. I happen to really love it, but it can it can certainly put yourself in a, a bad situation if you don't kind of respect that and at least start to learn why it's difficult. But yeah, no, I uh, I firmly believe that. So what are some lessons, I guess, from the Erlang perspective or your Haskell or Clojure experience that you've taken away from when you're working with distributed systems, whether they're in one of those languages or if you're having to integrate with another language, say, I don't know if you're involved in the wrappers for some of the React stuff or you may be working in Python or Ruby or one of these other languages. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if if my answer is exactly what you're intending, but I think there's a lot of lessons from functional programming that are applicable for writing distributed systems and just writing larger programs in general. One of the biggest takeaways for me is using immutability as much as possible. So React-CS and Datomic are both largest scale distributed systems that 99 point something percent of the data they write is immutable. And you get a bunch of really cool properties that let you kind of skirt around some of the the more difficult aspects of distributed systems when you take some of these these lessons you've learned in functional programming and kind of apply them in the large. So a simple example of that, a lot of large-scale distributed systems are eventually consistent. The most common one you're probably familiar with is DNS. If you change a DNS record, that doesn't atomically update on everyone's browser. And when you think about that, that's pretty obvious, right? So programming with an eventually consistent model can be difficult. And a trick you can do is to make your values immutable wherever possible, because a nice property you get from that is that whenever you retrieve that value, it's either correct because it's immutable, it it cannot change, or the database says, hey, I can't find that for you. So one of two things must be true, which significantly shrinks the state space that you're normally working with, where you have some mutable value and you get it and you don't really even have a sense of time as to at what point was this value true? Are there other concurrent things happening? So I think we're kind of just now as an industry starting to apply some more of those lessons and I'm seeing it as a really powerful thing. Yeah, I came from the .NET background and for a couple of years before I was making the transition out of .NET into Ruby and other languages, there was a concept of event sourcing coming from the domain-driven design background mm-hmm. based off Eric's, Eric Evans' book with value objects and you just log events and then you then you just replay those events to get back into your state. Essentially, what you would think of as bank transactions or I guess now with a lot of the distributed version control systems coming in where you've got your discrete units that never actually change and you just you make new events that actually would play over them. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot in common there and that's definitely a, a, a very powerful technique. So probably you would say that those are actually decent metaphors for thinking about distributed systems and interactions for those who are just getting into that as well. Am I interpreting your yes. statements correctly by making that metaphor? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think so. You can sort of roughly think about a functional programming as the current state of the system, meaning the stack that each of the threads are at is a function of just the functions and the input that were input into the original system. There's some hand-waving I'm doing there, whether things are actually deterministic or not. But the more you can make that the case, that just given some starting input and a set of functions, you can recreate that state, the easier your life will be in debugging your system and answering questions like, why are we in this state right now? I mean, I think for me, that was one of the the biggest gains with functional programming is 
99% of the time I get to look at a function, type the input to it, see the output and say, okay, that is always going to be the output to this function. I don't have to worry about some other magic state in an object somewhere else. And being able to apply that same sort of equational reasoning to larger scale programs proves very useful, I think. Yeah, that way of thinking kind of reminds me of that episode when you're talking, your episode when you're talking with Craig and Dara, kind of about changing the way you write your code, being whether or not you're writing good things when you were describing property-based testing. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're kind of talking about thinking in terms of properties of those functions as well. Is that something that is accurate? Is that something that you've kind of made your transition to thinking about now? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And another sort of example of that, in distributed systems, it's often important to to write components of your system that are idempotent, which means that if run more than once, you get the same result as if you only ran them once. So a reason that comes up is oftentimes messaging in distributed systems is not guaranteed. Think about something like TCP, which we take for granted, but TCP is built on unguaranteed messaging. There's an acknowledgement process that is bolted on top of it to figure out what messages have been acknowledged. But even with TCP, if you don't get an act back for something, you don't know whether it was actually received by the client at the other end or not. Or a sort of higher level example, if I just make an HTTP post call, or maybe I click submit on some online banking transaction and my browser crashes. I don't know if that went through or not, and there might be no way to know. So if I can make those actions that I'm doing idempotent, then I know that I can safely retry it and wait until I get an acknowledgement for it. So when I'm writing a system like this, idempotency might be a property that I want to make sure that my function or my system has. And then you can use property-based testing to help convince yourself that that property actually does hold true. That kind of reminds me of a kind of an epiphany I had about item potency. I was waiting for my wife to come downstairs one time doing dishes because I wasn't sure if a dish was cleaned. And she said, you don't need to wait to ask me if you should just wash a dish. If it's, if it's clean, it doesn't hurt to clean it again. So just, yeah. if you're unsure, just wash right. the dish. Yep. Yeah, there are uh, uh, real world uses of that as well. <laughs> She said that. I was like, wait, that's item potency. So mm-hmm. watching dishes is item potent. Hey, yep. there's my Thank new you. metaphor. So with property-based checking, I know you're a big fan of it because I know you've been kind of, you've talked about the Haskell quick check. Mm-hmm. And I believe you guys use quick check or either quick check for Erlang or proper at Basho. And you've taken in your closure time the time to spend and do a simple check library, correct? Yeah. Pretty soon after playing around with quick check, I was convinced that it is a dramatically better way to test code. I certainly don't use it exclusively. I still sometimes do write traditional unit or integration tests, but wherever possible, I prefer to use property-based testing and I think it's paid off tremendously. I've used Erlang quick check at work since I started at Basho and have played around quite a bit with Haskell QuickCheck as well and sort of felt a void in the closure world for something that was as powerful as those two tools. In particular, one of the features that was missing from a lot of the closure implementations is something called shrinking. So I knew that I wanted to write an implementation for closure that from the beginning sort of thought about shrinking because that's a feature that I was sort of spoiled by it in the other implementations. So shrinking, if you don't know, is uh, a feature that a lot of quick check, or at least a lot of the sort of more mature quick check libraries have that allows you to let the testing tool reduce the state space and shrink the input of a failing case for you. So an example of that would be, let's say you're testing a reverse function and you're just doing some regular random testing, and the quick check implementation finds a failing case, but it has a thousand elements in the list, and it prints it out for you, and you say, okay, 
for some reason, this thousand element list is failing to be properly reversed. Now, it could very well be the case, and probably is quite likely, that only a few elements, or maybe even only one element in that list, is contributing to that failure. If we were to take out the seventh element, there's a pretty good chance the test would still fail. So oftentimes, especially when we get bug reports from customers or users, we have to do that process ourselves. We have to sort of manually start to change values to find out why the test failed. So shrinking basically takes that concept and tries to make the computer do as much of it for you as possible. So for every data type, there is a shrink algorithm, so to speak, which describes the way to shrink that data structure. So when quick check or simple check finds a failing case, it'll do that for you automatically. And most of the time, you're presented with a dramatically smaller failing case that makes it easier to see why it failed. If maybe you weren't accounting for negative numbers or something in your reverse function, that sticks out a lot more when it just comes back with a list that is the singleton element negative one, as opposed to a thousand element list that has one negative number somewhere in there. Okay, yeah. There's a previous episode that we touched on that was Zach Hessen. Just because of his Erlang background, he touched on a little bit about that. Oh, cool. Okay. But for those of you, for those who haven't listened, that was a good that was a good explanation. What are some of the tricks you found in working to think about properties and write tests that are based off functions or write functions that have properties associated with them? Because I know that's a completely different mindset. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I. I think that's probably the, at least the toughest first hump that you kind of have to get over when you start writing property-based tests is figuring out what property do I want to, to test at all. And I've said this before, but I think it's, it's analogous to, to when you first start writing unit tests. Oftentimes you'll write something and if you're not an experienced unit tester, you might think, oh, my my function's hard to test. That's just the way it is. But oftentimes, you'll find a way to rewrite the function that makes it actually easier to test. It was not testing's fault. It was your function's fault that it was tough to test. And certainly, there's, there's some of that to property-based testing. But I think if you kind of just challenge yourself to start rattling off some properties, they don't even have to be particularly interesting ones. They might be super, super obvious things, but just start rattling them off, write them down, and you'll be surprised at how many times even simple assumptions you've made don't actually end up being true because of some edge case in your in your function. And sometimes those edge cases are things that you see and you're like, oh, that's not really a bug, but you realize it was underspecified. So maybe if I'm writing a function that multiplies an age by two. I don't even think that the age might ever be negative one. So I, I run the test and quick check says, hey, this doesn't hold true if the age is negative one. You say, well, okay, that's because the age is never going to be negative one. But maybe now you write some validation logic to improve the error messaging there. So I oftentimes see it as a tool to kind of just help me work out a problem. It absolutely does find real and oftentimes very serious bugs but I think it's actually useful for sort of just exploring functions as well. Oftentimes in the closure standard library, if something is underspecified, I'll just run a simple check test on it to sort of see, hey, is this inclusive or exclusive here where the doc string might not say? So the more you use it, the more that sort of becomes second nature. Okay, couple follow-up questions. Uh, I'll rattle them both off and you can take them as you want. First is, does simple check and closure, does that kind of account for the pre and post conditions? So as you mentioned, the age is non-negative. Can you mm -hmm. set that up as a precondition? And then simple check will respect that. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different ways to do that. There is a such that function, which basically allows you to throw away values that don't match some predicate. So... In the case of the age example, you could use an integer generator and say, 
such that not negative. Another trick might be to call the absolute value on all of those integers. In this case, there's a positive integer generator that's already written for you. But yeah, there's a lot of facilities for controlling the specifics of the type of values that you generate. So it's certainly not the case that you have to sort of see the test fail and kind of mentally write it off in your head as, actually, that's okay. It's not hard to construct the generator such that they only generate valid input for the function. Okay, yeah, I just... That sounds good as well. I wasn't sure if there was just... Because I know you can actually set up pre and post conditions, and I didn't know if Simple Check at this point actually respects those as well and would be able to validate. Uh, okay, yeah, so it doesn't read the metadata on the function or anything like that. Uh, that's a cool idea, actually, though. Yeah, you were talking about the age is negative one, and you're like, well, you might throw an error, and that kind of reminded me of the essentially contract-oriented programming that you would get that Bertrand Meyer threw out with essentially get popularized with his Eiffel stuff mm-hmm. and then the pre and post conditions and closure. So I wasn't sure if reading that metadata, it's like, well, okay, either I throw in something which invalidates the metadata, which means I should be able to get that appropriate exception. Right. Or I know to filter that out implicitly because I also am just going to assume that those are my where clauses to test. Yeah, yeah, there's not anything like that that exists today, but I think that's a totally cool idea. Okay, second question is the properties with dealing with higher order functions. So things like a map and a reduce, do you have any suggestions for doing things where it's, you're dealing with the higher order functions where you either get a function in or you return a function? Any, right. Any obviousness? of how you structure those functions when trying to establish properties around them. Do you establish fake functions that get fed in as well with the property testing? Yeah, so Haskell Quick Check is pretty mature in this in this area. Erlang Quick Check has some facilities as well. This is not something I've added to Simple Check yet, or at least not something I've added with some easy helpers or anything. It's certainly possible. You know, you can just return a closure from a simple check generator. But oftentimes what you're doing is trying to state that no matter what this function does, no matter what its relationship from input to output is, something else is going to hold true. So you really just want something that maps from one domain to another. And so Haskell Quick Check gives you some tools for writing generators that actually generate functions like that. That's, that's definitely something that I'd like to eventually add to simple check. But I think the best advice there is try not to think of it too much differently than you would anything else. A function is just a value and you're trying to write a test that says for all functions that could be passed in here and might have some arbitrary relationship between input and output, something else is going to hold true. So if possible, you know, don't try and get too caught up on the fact that this thing is, hey, this is now a function and not a a regular value, so to speak. Okay, yeah, I wasn't sure just because I didn't know how well, not having played with property testing myself, but just knowing the high-level concepts, didn't know how many of the generators for functions would stand or if you had essentially had to create your own fill-in function that would then take some other stuff as well. Yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely facilities for doing that in several of the quick check implementations. I don't find that it's something I have to reach for very often, but it is there. The biggest gotcha is probably that functions are hard to print. So when the test fails and quick check, quick check says, hey, here's the failing example, figuring out how to actually print that function is a non-obvious problem. So that's probably the biggest gotcha that you'll likely run into. Okay, yeah. The other, I guess the other kind of thing, thinking in the back of my head that I can verbalize now is I wasn't sure if it meant that if you're trying to property test some of those, the property probably lives in yet another function, possibly, where it actually would be better suited to live. And then the higher order function is more just a glue of the two functions or something together. Yeah, I mean, so 
Let's give a concrete example real quick. So uh, let's say that we're trying to test a map implementation that we have. So one thing we know about map is that it should preserve the length of the input list. So whatever function we parameterize map with, that function should not mess with the length of the list that's returned. If we input a five element list into map, we should get back a five element list. And that should hold true for all functions that we can pass in as the first parameter to map. And if that's not the case, we might want to be able to shrink based on the function that we provide, or rather that is generated that we pass into map. But I think if you sort of just try not to get too caught up with it, you'll often find properties you can think of that take advantage of generated functions. Sounds good. I guess the next topic would be you're in Erlang, and I know you're playing in Clojure. They're both dynamic languages, whereas opposed mm-hmm. to Haskell is a very strongly and statically typed language. But you've got things like the uh, core typed from Ambrose Bonaire Sargent, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and Dialyzer, I guess out of Greece with Const- Constance, if I'm saying his name right? Uh, Costas, yeah. Costas, mm-hmm. where those give you the gradual typing. How have you found working kind of along along that dimension? Yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of static typing. So I I personally find a lot of use out of gradual typing. So when I'm working in a dynamically typed language, I don't want to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I'd like to take advantage of as much static analysis as I can. And fortunately, in Erlang, there is a rather mature tool called Dialyzer and Core Typed for Closure, which you just mentioned, which is a pretty new project. I've actually not had the chance to use it yet, but I've heard good things. I find that to be really helpful. It's certainly not the same as using a statically typed language. There are bugs that Haskell would check that Dialyzer does not. But it's really nice, at least I found, to have another tool in my toolbox for writing code that I'm more confident about. And over the course of the two and a half years that I've been using Dialyzer, I've, you know, I'm sure found hundreds of bugs with it that maybe they would have been found with a unit test, maybe not. But I'm able to to find them quickly, and Dialyzer points them out, usually without too much ceremony for me. So I find that really useful. Another really nice benefit is that you get a language for talking about types. And I think that's something that is really undervalued. So in Haskell, you often add type annotations to your functions, even when you don't need to. So Haskell has a really good type inference engine, but it's idiomatic to add type signatures to every function in Haskell, or at least every top-level definition. And that's because it serves as really, really great documentation. So both Erlang and Clojure with Core Typed and Dialyzer have a language for describing types as well. And I find that really useful for browsing code that I'm not familiar with, or I'll often use it when I'm writing code. I kind of do a lot of top-down type programming. So oftentimes I'll kind of write out the skeleton for a bunch of my programs and just add the types, but not actually fill in any implementation. And in Haskell, you can actually see if the program will compile that way. You just say that every function is equal to undefined, which inhabits every type. So you can actually sort of see at the type level if the way that you're thinking about sort of the skeleton of the problem makes sense. So I find that to be a very useful thing. And it sort of helps me think at a higher level, so to speak, about my program. So I'm not sure if I could say whether I prefer static or dynamic typing. I think that both are applicable. The the more that you're able to encode in a static type system, oftentimes that means the more complicated your language is. So languages like Agda and Idris, which are have even more expressive type systems than Haskell, take longer to learn and sometimes have more ceremony for doing things that people who have a dynamically typed language background might 
think seem unnecessary, but you can do really cool things with those. And regardless of, of where you make your own personal decision, I recommend to anyone to kind of learn one dynamically typed and one statically typed with a good type system language to kind of make that opinion yourself. And with a good type system does not mean Java or C sharp. It means an ML based language like Haskell or OCaml or something that really takes things to the next level with the type system that you feel like you're working with the type system as opposed to fighting against it. As a quick follow-up, I've heard that I believe Proper does, I'm not sure about Erlang QuickCheck, but it will actually create some test cases based off things like dialyzer definitions and use some use some of those as properties. Is that is something you found? Yeah. Yeah. So in Haskell QuickCheck, you get that for free because all of the Haskell QuickCheck functions are polymorphic on a type class that's called arbitrary. So they get to play this really neat trick where you can not even sort of have to describe the generators that are used for a function. You can just say, quick check this function, and the function will return a Boolean. In dynamically typed languages, you traditionally have to describe the input to say, what domain does this function take? And proper with a tool called typer allow you to play some of those same tricks in Erlang. Erlang quick check does not let you do that. So you do have to explicitly describe the generators when you're using Erlang quick check, which is the one that I've used the most. It's certainly a nice thing to not have to describe them. I personally don't find it too onerous. I get such bang for my buck when I write property-based tests that having to write down the input perhaps one more time isn't that big of a deal to me, but I'd certainly rather not have to do it given the choice. I wasn't sure of things like where you would go and... Because you have type inheritance and polymorphism is my understanding in Haskell. Whereas if you defined a, essentially a protocol enclosure, I don't know that there's really the rough equivalent of that in Erlang. There's not an Erlang, no. But where you could have essentially a parent contract that you're in theory fulfilling and then generate the different subtypes of that that you've found in the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so... I haven't done anything with simple check and protocols and closure at all. That's actually you know, what you bring up is an interesting thing that comes up in testing Haskell quick check programs. So if you're testing something that is a parametric type, like list or something like that, it can be list of anything. And by default, when you test a program like that with quick check, if you don't specify that the input is list of integers, it'll be list of bottom. Bottom is sort of at the top of the type hierarchy in Haskell. So if you're not careful, you can sometimes get yourselves in situations where you're not testing what the values you think you are. That being said, the type system should demand that it doesn't matter for you. Since you're trying to write a function that is polymorphic, you shouldn't care and you shouldn't be able to care what that A is. So Haskell can actually generate anything for that inner container type. Yeah, I was kind of thinking along the lines of even at a more specific level of things like numerics. I want to test with ints and floats and things. Zach Kesson on a previous podcast was kind of describing it and he was talking about an ad example where if you add a list and you shuffle and add a list, the results should be the same. Mm-hmm. Although likely due to IEEE issues, the floating points may not match. They would sure. in theory, but in practice. Whereas, oh, look, you've made this assumption, but I've generated it with a couple of... I didn't know if it kind of ran through and kind of did simple check or did quick check and test for each kind of type it could find that kind of fulfilled that polymorphic interface versus... This time I'm running with ints, and this time I'm running with floats, or this time I'm running with decimals and things like that. Right. Yeah, so that's a cool question, actually. I'm not aware of any quick check implementation that does that. I think the I think the type system in Haskell should kind of make it so that you shouldn't care, but 
not sure I'd be willing to bet that that is always the case. So, yeah, that's a cool question. Okay, I think we're getting close to the end point of wrapping up based off what I see the time, but I do want to bring up one more different topic, even though we could probably still keep going on a lot of these topics as we have been, and we'll probably need to get you back on in the future, but I want to make sure we fit this in now. Okay. You have been at least somewhat involved in Web Machine as well, correct? Uh-huh, I have, yes. I asked because, I, while I haven't played with it, I love your guys' diagram. Okay, that, yeah. Th- that flow chart of Web Machine is something, once I had it pointed out to me, I was like, this is so nice, and now I kind of share it with, okay, let's figure out what the, like, if we're actually going to deal with proper response codes, maybe we should look at this diagram. Yeah. And it's been pointed out that even you can turn on tracing for that and see the live trace of where each request came and came through. So just wanted to kind of cover and touch on that at least in, briefly and bring that up and kind of get your uh, feedback on web machine for anything else you would like to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely love web machine. If, you know, if I'm using any language other than Erlang, I am always looking for, what the best web machine port for that language is. It has totally changed the way I think about writing server-side code. The basic idea of web machine, for those of you who don't know, is you write a bunch of callbacks for different parts of the decision process when processing a web request. So the first callback, I believe, is service available, which your function takes the state of the request and just returns a Boolean, true or false, for whether or not you should return HTTP 503. So you fulfill a bunch of these callbacks without having to think about the temporal aspect, when they're going to be called. And Web Machine actually takes control of figuring out when to call them. So if a certain condition holds true, it might not even be the case that we need to test something else. If service available returns false, we can skip processing everything else. So it sort of inverts your logic from normal kind of traditional web programming where you just get a request and then you're responsible for figuring out all of these things. And there's oftentimes no structure to it. In the middle of the request, you might kind of bail out and say, uh, actually service unavailable. So I've found that it really cleans up my code and as someone who cares about proper use of HTTP, it makes it so much easier to write things that really fit HTTP. And I think that makes it easier for people who are writing clients and stuff. So yeah, I'm a, a big fan of Web Machine. I've also, I believe it was that one. I've looked at a couple different projects. Am I correct in thinking that one is one of the great examples of the way of the way to structure a set of OTP applications, or am I thinking of a different project? Yeah, Web Machine is probably a pretty good example. It's a uh, like any sufficiently large program. There's some tech there in there, but overall, it's well structured and correctly uses supervisors and all that. So yeah, that's definitely a great example to dig into. Yeah, I want to make sure we kind of touched on that. Let anybody know who wasn't familiar with it a kind of brief overview, and definitely wanted to promote that graphic that you guys have done because that in and of itself, that PD, uh, that PNG that you guys have posted is worth printing out on a plotter and hanging up on a wall. If you do anything with websites or web services. Yeah. I've, uh, I've unfortunately not, you know, made a poster size version of it yet, but I look at it at least once a month. So it definitely comes in handy, you know, even when I'm, I'm working with web machine and, a lot of those things, you don't really have to think about. It kind of does it for you. But if I can't figure out why something is the way it is, or I'm trying to figure out how efficient something is, that chart comes in handy. Or even just trying to understand the HTTP specification. It is a little bit underspecified, to say the least. So sometimes if I'm trying to figure out which status code is correct, I'll look at that for guidance because Justin Sheehy, Brian Fink, and Andy Gross, who are the original authors have a lot of experience with that stuff. And if I'm undecided about something and I sort of have to make a decision, I could do worse by just doing what they figured out. So I guess wrapping up, I want to give you the opportunity to 
kind of ask you, is there anything you would like to plug? And do you have any appearances for people to find you at? Other projects that we haven't kind of touched on that you're involved with that people may want to check out or help you out with? Or just any recommendations in general? Sure, yeah. Just whatever. It kind of This is your pulpit. This is your chance to get anything you want out and tell people to blast it out. Sure, yeah. So you can sort of see what I'm working at on my GitHub, which uh, we can put on the show notes. Both React and React CS are open source. So if you're looking for a solid example of large-scale distributed Erlang applications or just distributed systems in general, you can go look at all the code there, which I think is really cool. You know, that's not something that five or 10 years ago you could say for very many projects. So I learned so much of what I know from programming from just looking at other open source applications. So that's really cool. Definitely check out Haskell if you kind of want to bend your brain, especially with type system stuff. Cock and Agda and Idris are also really cool languages that take things even further. And certainly I'm not able to do much with them, but are very cool. Let's see what else. I've got a, let's see, there's a, a fun paper I can shout out called The Implementation of Functional Programming Languages. I believe I might have the exact wording wrong, but it's a short book by Simon Payton Jones that was published, I believe, in the late 80s. But it goes over Lambda Calculus and writing a lazily evaluated functional programming language, which that book helped me a lot learning kind of fundamental ML-inspired functional programming things. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a, a pretty good list of things. So where can people find you online? You mentioned your GitHub page. Uh, are there any other good places for people to follow you, stalk you, see what's going on? Yeah, so I am Reed Draper, R-E-I-D-D-R-A-P-E-R, on Twitter, GitHub, and .com. So between those, you can get in touch with me or you know, sort of see what I'm hacking on. Okay, I think we've about covered everything we can fit into one show. Odds are I'll get you back on at some point in the future, and we'll continue talking property-based checking, seeing how your simple check has come, and probably just talk some more about some distributed systems and things like that. I know, kind of talking before and coordinating this, there was a whole list of things along the types of distributed systems with CRDTs and a bunch of other things along those lines. So. I will definitely have to get you back on to talk some more about everything you've been working on and all your different distributed systems as well. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I really want to thank Reed for giving his time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you today, Reed. Yeah, thanks, Proctor. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.